This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Appreciations and Criticisms of the Works of Charles Dickens by G. K. Chesterton Section 27 Chapter 20 Great Expectations Great Expectations, which was written in the afternoon of Dickens' life and fame, has a quality of serene irony and even sadness, which puts it quite alone among his other works. At no time could Dickens possibly be called cynical. He had too much vitality, but relative to the other books, this book is cynical. But it has the soft and gentle cynicism of old age, not the hard cynicisms of youth. To be a young cynic is to be a young brute. But Dickens, who had been so perfectly romantic and sentimental in his youth, could afford to admit this touch of doubt into the mixed experience of his middle age. At no time could any books by Dickens have been called Thackerayan. Both of the two men were too great for that. But relative to the other Dickensian productions, this book may be called Thackerayan. It is a study in human weakness and the slow human surrender. It describes how easily a free lad of fresh and decent instincts can be made to care more for rank and pride and the degrees of our stratified society than for old affection and for honor. It is an extra chapter to The Book of Snobs. The best way of stating the change which this book marks in Dickens can be put in one phrase. In this book, for the first time, the hero disappears. The hero had descended to Dickens by a long line which begins with the gods, nay, perhaps, if one may say so, which begins with God. First comes deity, and then the image of deity. First comes the god, and then the demigod. The Hercules who labors and conquers before he receives his heavenly crown. That idea, with continual mystery and modification, has continued behind all romantic tales. The demigod became the hero of paganism. The hero of paganism became the knight-errant of Christianity. The knight-errant who wandered and was foiled before he triumphed became the hero of the latter prose romance, the romance in which the hero had to fight a duel with the villain, but always survived, in which the hero drove desperate horses through the night in order to rescue the heroine, but always rescued her. This heroic, modern hero, this demigod, in a top hat, may be said to reach his supreme moment and typical example about the time when Dickens was writing that thundering and thrilling and highly unlikely scene in Nicholas Nickleby, the scene where Nicholas hopelessly denounces the atrocious grind in his hour of grinning triumph, and a thud upon the floor above tells them that the heroine's tyrannical father has died just in time to set her free. That is the apotheosis of the pure heroic, as Dickens found it, and as Dickens in some sense continued it. It may be that it does not appear with quite so much unmistakable youth, beauty, valor, and virtue, as does in Nicholas Nickleby. Walter Gay is a simpler and a more careless hero, but when he is doing any of the business of the story he is purely heroic. Kit Nubbles is a humbler hero, but he is a hero. When he is good, he is very good. 
even david copperfield who confesses to boyish tremors and boyish evasions in his account of his boyhood acts the strict stiff part of the chivalrous gentleman in all the active and determining scenes of the tale but great expectations may be called like vanity fair a novel without a hero almost all thackeray's novels except esmond are novels without a hero but only one of dickens novels can be so described i do not mean that it is a novel without a jeune premier a young man to make love pickwick is that and oliver twist and perhaps the old curiosity shop i mean that it is a novel without a hero in the same far deeper and more deadly sense in which pendennis is also a novel without a hero i mean that it is a novel which aims chiefly at showing that the hero is unheroic all such phrases as these must appear of course to overstate the case pip is a much more delightful person than nicholas nickleby or to take a stronger case for the purpose of our argument pip is a much more delightful person than sidney carton still the fact remains most of nicholas nickleby's personal actions are meant to show that he is heroic most of pip's actions are meant to show that he is not heroic the study of sidney carton is meant to indicate that with all his vices sidney carton was a hero the study of pip is meant to indicate that with all his virtues pip was a snob the motive of the literary explanation is different pip and pendennis are meant to show how circumstances can corrupt men sam weller and hercules are meant to show how heroes can subdue circumstances this is the preliminary view of the book which is necessary if we are to regard it as a real and separate fact in the life of dickens dickens had many moods because he was an artist but he had one great mood because he was a great artist any real difference therefore from the general drift or rather i apologize to dickens the general drive of his creation is very important this is one place in his work in which he does i will not say feel like thackeray far less think like thackeray less still write like thackeray but this is one of his works in which he understands thackeray he puts himself in some sense in the same place he considers mankind at somewhat the same angle as mankind is considered in one of the sociable and sarcastic novels of thackeray when he deals with pip he sets out not to show his strength like the strength of hercules but to show his weakness like the weakness of pendennis when he sets out to describe pip's great expectations he does not set out as in a fairy tale with the idea that these great expectations will be fulfilled he sets out from the first with the idea that these great expectations will be disappointing we might very well as i have remarked elsewhere apply to all dickens books the title great expectations all his books are full of an airy and yet ardent expectation of everything of the next person who shall happen to speak of the next chimney that shall happen to smoke of the next event of the next ecstasy of the next fulfilment of any eager human fancy all his books might be called great expectations but the only book to which he gave the name great expectations was the only book in which the expectation was never realized it was so with the whole of that splendid and unconscious generation to which he belonged 
The whole glory of that old English middle class was that it was unconscious. Its excellence was entirely in that, that it was the culture of the nation and that it did not know it. If Dickens had ever known that he was optimistic, he would have ceased to be happy. It is necessary to make this first point clear, that in great expectations Dickens was really trying to be a quiet, a detached, and even a cynical observer of human life. Dickens was trying to be Thackeray. And the final and startling triumph of Dickens is this, that even to this moderate and modern story he gives an incomparable energy, which is not moderate and which is not modern. He is trying to be reasonable, but in spite of himself he is inspired. He is trying to be detailed, but in spite of himself he is gigantic. Compared to the rest of Dickens, this is Thackeray, but compared to the whole of Thackeray, we can only say in supreme praise of it that it is Dickens. Take, for example, the one question of snobbishness. Dickens has achieved admirably the description of the doubts and vanities of the wretched Pip as he walks down the street in his new gentlemanly clothes, the clothes of which he is so proud and so ashamed. Nothing could be so exquisitely human, nothing especially be so exquisitely masculine as that combination of self-love and self-assertion and even insolence with a naked and helpless sensibility to the slightest breath of ridicule. Pip thinks himself better than everyone else, and yet anybody can snub him. That is the everlasting male, and perhaps the everlasting gentleman. Dickens has described perfectly this quivering and defenceless dignity. Dickens has described perfectly how ill-armed it is against the coarse humour of real humanity. The real humanity which Dickens loved, but which idealists and philanthropists do not love. The humanity of cabmen, the costermongers, and the men singing in a third-class carriage. The humanity of Trav's boy. In describing Pip's weakness, Dickens is as true and as delicate as Thackeray, but Thackeray might have been easily as true and as delicate as Dickens. This quick and quiet eye for the tremors of mankind is a thing which Dickens possessed, but which others possessed also. George Eliot or Thackeray could have described the weakness of Pip. Exactly what George Eliot and Thackeray could not have described was the vigor of Trabb's boy, there would have been an admirable humour and observation in their accounts of that intolerable urchin. Thackeray would have given us little light touches of Trabb's boy, absolutely true to the qualities and colour of the humour, just as in his novels of the eighteenth century the glimpses of Steele or Bolingbroke or Dr. Johnson are exactly and perfectly true to the colour and quality of their humour. George Eliot, in her earlier books, would have given us shrewd, authentic scraps of the real dialect of Trabb's boy, just as she gave us shrewd and authentic scraps of the real talk in a Midland country town. In her later books she would have given us highly rationalistic explanations of Trabb's boy, which we should not have read. But exactly what they could never have given, and exactly what Dickens does give, is the bounce of Trabb's boy. It is the real unconquerable rush and energy in a character which was the supreme and quite indescribable greatness of Dickens. He conquered by rushes, 
he attacked in masses he carried things at the spear-point in a charge of spears he was the rupert of fiction the thing about any figure of dickens about sam weller or dick swiveller or micawber or bagstock or trabb's boy the thing about each one of these persons is that he cannot be exhausted a dickens character hits you first on the nose and then in the waistcoat and then in the eye and then in the waistcoat again with the blinding rapidity of some battering engine the scene in which trabb's boy continually overtakes pip in order to reel and stagger as at first encounter is a thing quite within the real competence of such a character it might have been suggested by thackeray or george eliot or any realist but the point with dickens is that there is a rush in the boy's rushings the writer and the reader rush with him they start with him they stare with him they stagger with him they share an inexpressible vitality in the air which emanates from this violent and capering satirist trabb's boy is among other things a boy he has a physical rapture in hurling himself like a boomerang and in bouncing to the sky like a ball it is just exactly in describing this quality that dickens is dickens and that no one else comes near him no one feels in his bones that felix holt was strong as he feels in his bones that little quilp was strong no one can feel even that rodson crawley's splendid smack across the face of lord stein is quite so living and life-giving as the kick after kick which old mr weller dealt the dancing and quivering stiggins as he drove him towards the trough this quality whether expressed intellectually or physically is the profoundly popular and eternal quality in dickens it is the thing that no one else could do this quality is the quality which has always given its continuous power and poetry to the common people everywhere it is life it is the joy of life felt by those who have nothing else but life it is the thing that all aristocrats have always hated and dreaded in the people and it is the thing which poor pip really hates and dreads in trabb's boy a great man of letters or any great artist is symbolic without knowing it the things he describes are types because they are truths shakespeare may or may not have ever put it to himself that richard the second was a philosophical symbol but all good criticism must necessarily see him so it may be a reasonable question whether the artist should be allegorical there can be no doubt among sane men that the critic should be allegorical spencer may have lost by being less realistic than fielding but any good criticism of tom jones must be as mystical as the fairy queen hence it is unavoidable in speaking of a fine book like great expectations that we should give even to its unpretentious and realistic figures a certain massive mysticism pip is pip but he is also the well-meaning snob and this is even more true of those two great figures in the tale which stand for the english democracy for indeed the first and last word upon the english democracy is said in joe gargery and trabb's boy the actual english populace as distinct from the french populace or the scotch or irish populace may be said to lie between those two types the first is the poor man who does not assert himself at all and the second is the poor man who asserts himself entirely with the weapon of sarcasm the only way in which the english now ever rise in revolution 
is under the symbol and leadership of Trabb's boy. What pikes and shillelaghs were to the Irish populace, what guns and barricades were to the French populace, that chaff is to the English populace. It is their weapon, the use of which they really understand. It is the one way in which they can make a rich man feel uncomfortable, and they use it very justifiably for all it is worth. If they do not cut off their heads of tyrants, at least they sometimes do their best, to make the tyrants lose their heads. The gutter boy knows the great towns carry the art of personal criticism to so rich and delicate degree some well-dressed persons, when they walk past a file of them, feel as if they were walking past a row of omniscient critics or judges with the power of life and death. Here and there only is some ordinary human custom, some natural human pleasure, suppressed in deference to the fastidiousness of the rich. But all the rich tremble before the fastidiousness of the poor. Of the other type of democracy it is far more difficult to speak. It is always hard to speak of good things or good people. For in satisfying the soul they take away a certain spur to speech. Dickens was often called a sentimentalist. In one sense he sometimes was a sentimentalist. But if sentimentalism be held to mean something artificial or theatrical, then in the core and reality of his character Dickens was the very reverse of a sentimentalist. He seriously and definitely loved goodness. To see sincerity and charity satisfied him like a meal. What some critics call his love of sweet stuff is really his love of plain beef and bread. Sometimes one is tempted to wish that in the long Dickens dinner the sweet courses could be left out. But this does not make the whole banquet other than a banquet singularly solid and simple. The critics complain of the sweet things, but not because they are so strong as to like simple things. They complain of the sweet things, because they are so sophisticated as to like sour things. Their tongues are tainted with the bitterness of absinthe. Yet because of the very simplicity of Dickens' moral tastes, it is impossible to speak adequately of them, and Joe Gargery must stand as he stands in the book, a thing too obvious to be understood. But this may be said of him in one of his minor aspects, that he stands for a certain long-suffering in the English poor, a certain weary patience and politeness which almost breaks the heart. One cannot help wondering whether that great mass of silent virtue will ever achieve anything on this earth. The end of section 27, chapter 20, Great Expectations.